Well, remain standing, and let's take our Bibles out, and I'm going to have you turn to Mark chapter 15. We'll read together the first 20 verses this morning, or I will read them. You follow along with me as I do. And when we conclude and you are seated, keep your Bibles out. As always, I encourage you to do that as we look to God's Word and we go through all of these verses and and seek to see what the Lord has for us in them. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let us pray as we get ready to look at this. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that as we look at these very serious things, as we look at at these events leading now very Uh, very closely to the time of the crucifixion of our Lord. We pray that you would help us to give heed to your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use me and the, the weakness that I possess, Lord, that you would uh, pour into me your strength, Father, that I might rightly proclaim your word to your people today, people whom you love, a people for whom you sent your son into this world to to undergo these things, to endure these things in order that we might be made right with you. Bless us in this time, we pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning's passage finds Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, creator and sustainer of the universe, a prisoner. A prisoner of his people, a prisoner of the Jews. And it brings to mind, doesn't it, the, the words from the opening of John's Gospel, that the word Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And as we've seen so far, and we'll continue, of course, to see, and you know very well that not only did they not receive him, but his people, particularly the religious leaders of his people, have sought to destroy him. And through the betrayal of one of Jesus' own followers, they have now arrested him in the middle of the night, dragged him before the high priest and the high council of the Jewish leadership. They've brought false witnesses against him, and they have found him to be worthy of death, being, according to them, guilty of blasphemy for proclaiming himself to be God, which they did not understand. They had hardened their hearts against the fact that that is who he is. That is who he was. Now, this morning, we, we see these events continue. We continue through this narrative here, uh, rushing on now and will consummate uh, shortly in the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, in just a little over three hours from where uh, we began our reading this morning. This is now the dawn of the day on which Christ will be crucified, when the King of glory will die for the sins of all of those who trust in him. When we looked at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, um, again, a word that not a lot of people know, but you know it now because we've been going through it. The Sanhedrin is that high council of the Jews that consisted of the, the Jewish high priests, the elders of the people, the religious scribes. We saw that that trial was filled with irregularities, even illegalities, one of which was, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that it met in the middle of the night, which was against the rules of that august body. And so in the beginning here of chapter 15, probably to legitimize uh, those questionable overnight proceedings, we read in the opening verse of chapter 15 that as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So now we have a meeting, Mark says, of the whole council. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the, the meeting in the middle of the night probably was not attended by the whole council. We might anticipate that as time went on that, that people would, would trickle in and, and join the group. But now as day gets ready to break, all of the members, all the 51 members of the Sanhedrin are now present. And that, Mark says, as soon as it was morning. So probably right 
at, if not even yet a little before, the sun rose that day. Uh, There's a time crunch here that they are under. The Sabbath is coming. The Sabbath will start at sundown on Friday, this day that we're looking at here. And for another thing, the civil magistrate that we'll talk about this morning would typically hold court early in the morning. So the Sanhedrin, the the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, wanting to get this done, are pushing things along, moving things along. So after their consultation that we read about, uh, which certainly was very brief, Remember the, remember the procedure of the Sanhedrin from earlier that we looked at, that they had begun with the verdict, begun with the sentence predetermined, right? We looked at that, and then worked backwards from that, trying to find some evidence, some witnesses, some, some reason, some charge, uh, that they could put against Jesus and some, some evidence that would support it, which they could not do. And it was only when Jesus himself answered the high priest's direct question, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed, the Son of God? And when Jesus answered that and said, I am, and then went on to explain to them what that actually meant, that the council then pronounced him guilty of blasphemy and held him in custody until, until now. And now at the beginning of the day, they meet together more formally, more legitimately, and formalize the charge against Jesus. And now, as an official prisoner, Mark tells us in verse 1 that they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. As we go through this this morning, in this passage, we're going to come across, not once, not twice, but three times this phrase, this term, that Jesus was delivered. He was delivered up. He was delivered over. It's here in this verse. It's in verse 10. It's in verse 15. We're going to see it uh, in another uh, mention of another gospel. And if we think back to Jesus' predictions that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Mark, the predictions that Jesus had made of his coming betrayal and death and resurrection, that he had prophesied that he would be, back in chapter 10, he said it, verse 33, he said that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and that they, in turn, would condemn him to death, which we saw a couple weeks ago, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. It's a technical term, this this term of delivering over. It's it's used in regard to uh, uh, the police and the, the courts, and it refers to handing someone over into the custody of. And Jesus had said that would be done. He would be delivered over into the hands of the Jews. Then the Jews would deliver him over into the hands of the Gentiles. And beloved, what we read here in verse 1 of chapter 15 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And they delivered him over to Pilate. 
So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at first um, Jesus before Pilate. That's the first of three topics that we'll look at this morning. Jesus before Pilate. We regularly in this congregation recite together the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, one of those very early creeds of Christianity which give to us in very uh, very succinct form the sort of the lowest common denominator of the true Christian's faith, the, the minimum that is necessary to be believed. And both those, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we recite so often, mention that Jesus suffered and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, we say, we confess. And as you read that from time to time and and say it, you might think, well, that's a strangely specific phrase to to be put into such a compact, important statement as these creeds. Uh, But that's the point. That's why it's there. It is specific and Just as importantly, it is historical. That phrase is in those creeds to remind us that, and and we confess it, we confess to its truth, we confess to its importance when we confess those creeds together, that Jesus' life and his suffering and his death took place in real time and space, verifiable history. Christianity is not some esoteric, mythological uh, religion, but it is important to know, and the creed writers uh, felt it was important for us to know that Jesus stepped into history. That he, again, from John's, uh, the beginning of John's gospel, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us in Judah and in Galilee and in Jerusalem. And he lived and he suffered and he will die under this historical figure, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor, technically the prefect over the region of Judea. He was the fifth such governor, and he served in that capacity from 26 A.D. to 37 A.D. before he was removed uh, from that post by the Romans. He was put into that post by the Romans. He was removed uh, from the Romans. And Pilate is known to history as a cruel, unmoving, harsh governor of the region over the Jews. We don't have time to look, but we could uh, adduce many uh, examples of that. Just a, a quick couple to give you the flavor. Pilate at one point brought into Jerusalem and into the precincts of the temple at one time thousands of Roman soldiers uh, carrying with them military flag standards that bore the image of the Roman Caesar. That would be highly uh, inflammatory to the Jews, and it was, but he didn't care. Another instance is that uh, Pilate was known for uh, building 
a famous aqueduct that brought water into the city of Jerusalem, which is fine and good, but he funded it by stealing money from the the temple treasury in order to build this. So those types of of things. He had many um, insurrections or threats of insurrections put down very violently. He was just a, a bad fellow. So why then would the Jews send Jesus to Pilate? Why don't they just take care of this themselves? Well, it was because though the Jews, the Sanhedrin, had gathered and had found Jesus worthy of death, the Jews, as they were under the control and the restriction of the Roman Empire, they did not have the authority under Rome to carry out a capital sentence. They could not put anyone to death. And so the Jews were in a bit of a a hard place. If they were to see Jesus done away with, if they were to see Jesus put to death, it would have to be done not by the Jews, but by the Romans. And the Jews, at least its leaders, so hated Jesus that it drove them, as it were, into the arms of the hated Romans. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. For them to do the dirty work that the Jews were not able to do. And we might look at a prophecy and think about how, again, wonderfully that all worked out because Jesus was to be crucified, and if the Jews would have killed him, he would have been stoned. And so, off to Pilate, the civil magistrate, Jesus was sent. Uh, There's another difficulty, though, as as they do that. Remember that the crime that the Sanhedrin sort of came up with eventually and said that Jesus was guilty of death uh, for, for uh, was the, the charge of blasphemy. But blasphemy is a religious crime, and although it was very serious to the Jews, it would have been of absolutely no consequence to the Romans. And so if Jesus is to be put to death by the Romans, they need a charge that would bring about his death when held by the, by the civil magistrate, by the Roman government. And again, the Jews, remember, had tried that. Again, thinking back a couple weeks ago, in that nighttime courtroom, they, they brought many witnesses, and they finally um, find that all of them are unable to agree even charges that were very obviously made up. And so Jesus then, though, is, is brought, bound, before the Roman civil leader, Pontius Pilate. Now look at verses 2 through 5. And here is Jesus before Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now, as you think on all of the, the different details of, of this story, of this aspect of Jesus' uh, life, we realize that Mark, as he was earlier, is very brief here. Uh, his description of these events is, is very brief, very terse. He moves on very quickly um, as he describes the, the events over the next few hours of Jesus' life. For example, here in Jesus' appearance before Pilate, as we read in verses 2 through 5, and we'll continue in uh, verses 6 through 15, Mark is really condensing and summarizing what, according to the other gospel writers, were actually two appearances before, uh, before Pilate, the Roman prefect, the Roman governor. And even before we get to Pilate's first question here that we have in verse 2, let me just mention that John gives us some additional information that Pilate's first task was to determine the charge against Jesus. That makes sense in any sort of trial. Um, And again, the problem is there aren't any. Uh, They don't really have one. And so when Pilate asks them about this, they give uh, this very coy answer that if this man, they say, were not doing evil, we would not have, and notice this word again, we would not have delivered him over to you. How's that for an answer? Obviously, Pilate, we would not have brought him if he were not guilty, but we're here and Jesus is here, so obviously he's guilty. Still not mentioning guilty of what? So that's the answer that they give, and that doesn't really hold any water with, with Pilate. And so we read in other Gospels, Luke tells us that they, they resort to just sort of throwing these things out there. Uh, the, the idea of throwing everything against the wall to see if anything sticks, that's what the Jews do. Uh, Luke fills us in. He says that they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's what they throw out. And here then is where Mark then picks up with the notion that that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, and therefore a king. Now that would get the attention of the Roman governor. It would be of some interest to them to hear uh, much as Herod had when Jesus was born, that a new king is, has arisen. That would be troublesome to them. And so Pilate asks Jesus there, are you the king of the Jews? Now, there's a, not a little bit of sarcasm and derision in the way he asks that question. Are you the king of the Jews? You who are standing here before me in chains, Um, You who are part of a people who we rule over, who we have conquered, and we call the shots here, are you their king? And Jesus says simply, verse 2, you have said so. Now it's difficult to know here from what Mark writes exactly how to take that. There have been some who have thought he's saying, well, you said that, Pilate, I haven't said that. 
but that's not what he means. If we, again, uh, look to the other Gospels, we get help by hearing what John says. He gives a fuller answer uh, that Jesus gives to Pilate. John tells us um, about that. He says this is the answer that Jesus gives as John records it. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So basically, when Jesus said, you have said so, he's saying, yes, but there's more to it. He's saying basically here, yes, I am a king, but I am not a, a civil, political a threat to your position, Pilate, or to a Caesar's position, because my kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the Roman Empire. He says, if my kingdom was an earthly kingdom, things would be different, but it's not. So I can imagine Pilate thinking at that point that Jesus is just some sort of crackpot. Yes, you're a king, but your king is not, you're not a king like I am, or like the Caesar is the king. You're the king of some otherworldly kingdom. Got it. But beloved, Jesus is most certainly a king. He is the highest king, isn't he? He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom, this kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, however you want to term it, exists alongside of and even within the kingdoms of this world. But it is different. It is bigger. It is prior. It is greater. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. God said way back in Psalm 2, I have set my king in Zion, on Zion, my holy hill. And that king is his beloved son, Jesus Christ. His kingdom, God says, is an eternal kingdom. He rules over all. And in the end, the kingdoms of this world will all bow to God's king. Amen? And Pilate doesn't know it. He doesn't get it. But even as Jesus now appears before him to be judged by him, so one day Pilate and every other king and every other subject of this world will stand before the judgment seat of God and this man, Jesus Christ, will be the judge, the ultimate judge. But here in Mark, Jesus gives the simple answer. You've said so. And then we read in verse 3 that, as I mentioned, the chief priests accused him of many things. We already mentioned what those were, crimes against the empire. But again, all false charges, all presented without any evidence, without any witnesses, it's just, this is the way it is. And Pilate, like the high priest had been the night before, 
is astounded at the fact that Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say anything. It's interesting that in both Jesus appearing before the Sanhedrin and now him appearing before Pilate, that Jesus answers questions in regard to his identity. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answered that one. Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answers that one. But when he's confronted with charges of these crimes that, that he didn't commit, he, as Isaiah predicted, opens not his mouth, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, as I mentioned then, Mark has, is summarizing these two appearances of Jesus before Pilate. And the way that these two work out is that Jesus is brought before Pilate, as we read, uh, when Pilate, in the midst of his speaking to Jesus with details that Mark does not include here, uh, Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, up in the north, uh, which is under the governance of another man, a different man, a man named Herod Antipas. And since Herod is in, by chance, just happens to be in Jerusalem at that time, just down the street from where uh, Pilate's palace was, Pilate sends Jesus there. And the other Gospels record aspects of that, and after a brief interaction, Jesus is then sent back to Pilate. And as part of that second time, that Jesus is before Pilate, this next interaction takes place. As it's recorded here, it's an interaction, and this will be our second topic, it's an interaction of Pilate before the crowd. We saw Jesus before Pilate, now we see Pilate before the crowd. Apparently, the text tells us, um, and though this was not a widespread, empire-wide situation, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had instituted a, an, an annual amnesty, so to speak, a pardon of a criminal of the people's choosing. And we read that there in verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Mark says there that, that, that this amnesty was, was extended regularly, he says, at the feast. Remember, Passover just happened. Now we're in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which will run for a week. And it's during this feast that, that this situation takes place. We're told also of an individual who was being held in prison by the Romans, being held for execution. Remember, the Romans did not have a prison system like we have, where the punishment is to stay in prison. A prison was a holding area for people while they're waiting either for trial or, more often, for execution. And Mark tells us that there is this man who's being held there, uh, held there for execution, most likely, as we get his description, um, a man named Barabbas who was a particularly nasty fellow. Matthew says that he was a notorious prisoner. Luke says 
that he had been thrown into prison for starting an insurrection and for murder. John calls him a robber, a thief, and Mark says here that he was a murderer and was part of this, he calls it the insurrection, uh, something that we don't know exactly which one. There were many insurrections, but the, apparently the readers, the original readers of Mark's sort of knew uh, this association. He was one of those insurrectionists, this Barabbas was, quite possibly a leader among them. And in verses 6 through 15, then, we have the record of Pilate uh, before the crowd. Pilate perhaps seeing an opportunity to release Jesus. When we read, was, that, was a, that was sort of the idea of Pilate after talking to Jesus, finding out that he hasn't done anything. Uh, so perhaps seeing an opportunity to release him, and Pilate even recognizes and states more than once that there's nothing, uh, he's done nothing worthy of death. And so perhaps to spare this man, Mark notes in verse 10 that it's because he perceived, see it there in verse 10, that it was out of envy that the chief priests, and here's our phrase again, had delivered him up. So Pilate was not a nice guy by any stretch, but he was also no fool. And he can easily see through the, the chief priest's uh, ruse here. He knows that they have not come to him with this prisoner against the empire uh, out of some newfound loyalty to the Romans. But, as Mark says, it's out of envy that they've done this. Pilate sees that. They had an intense hatred of Jesus. And they had an intense hatred of Jesus because he was growing in popularity among the people. He was growing in influence among the people, especially among those people from Galilee who had come down with him and who had proclaimed him to even be the Messiah when he entered into Jerusalem just that past Sunday. So even to Pilate, to use the King James English, this whole affair stinketh. Perhaps also a part of this, if you recall from reading Matthew's Gospel, is this warning that Pilate received from his wife, who sent word to him, sort of while he's in the midst of this, she sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Just be done with this Jesus guy. And so as the people gather outside, our text tells us outside of the governor's mansion in verse 8 says, began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And this could be part of the, the whole ceremony, that the crowd would ask Pilate to do this. And he would say, I am so gracious, I will do this for you. Uh, when they do, he offers them Jesus. Verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Again, he knows that the Sanhedrin have it in for Jesus, but maybe the people will be more reasonable, and maybe I can just give Jesus uh, to them and placate them that way. And again, Pilate is not calling Jesus the king of the Jews, but he's echoing that aspect of the case against him, probably, again, in a derisive way. But look then at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas 
instead. So the chief priests step in and stir up the crowd. They incite the crowd somehow to to demand that this known murderer, this known insurrectionist, this known thief to be put back on the streets with the Jewish people there instead of Jesus. The hatred that they had of Jesus. In fact, the hatred against Jesus in general, then and now, is a strong and an irrational hatred. You know, we've kind of been spared that aspect uh, here in this country in the past, but that's kind of changing, isn't it? People used to be able to be at least outwardly neutral to Christ and Christianity and to coexist with Christ and with Christians. Again, outwardly, we know that no one is truly neutral. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Uh, but, but no more, right? It seems, that pe- well, it seems that people can't be neutral on anything anymore. And here, the chief priest, the religious elite, whip up the crowd to call for, even to demand, looking at the other Gospels, to demand that Barabbas be released instead. Verse 12, the Pilate said again to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. For the Jewish people to cry out to a Roman official to submit one of their own to crucifixion is amazing. Nigh on unimaginable, but here it is. So vehement was the hatred of the chief priests, the religious people, the church people, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that nothing was beyond the pale for them. We would rather take this murderer than this Jesus. And so, no doubt, at the instigation of the Jewish leaders, the crowd dare I say the mob, call out for the death of Jesus. And they call out for the death of Jesus to be carried out by a form of death that is so heinous, so torturous, so grotesque that the the Romans themselves would not carry it out against a Roman citizen. But Pilate is, is up against it. Makes me think of, in the movie, Young Frankenstein, Inspector Kemp, one of my favorite lines from that movie, said, a riot is an ugly thing. A riot is an ugly thing. And that's what this is turning into. That's what he is fearful of. No governor of a Roman province needs a riot on their hands needs an an insurrection on their hands. And so after a final attempt, him asking, why? What evil has he done? And notice the answer here is only louder shouts. Crucify him. That's a horrible thing for people to say. If you read the other gospel accounts, the the vitriol, the, the abject hostility of the crowds, and you can read about it if you want to read in Matthew 27 and Luke 23 and John 19. You get the the flavor of this. The just the attitude toward Jesus is 
so vile and spurred on again by the chief priests of Israel. And Pilate finally acquiesces to their demands, and the text says that he released for them Barabbas. You may find it interesting to learn that Barabbas was not his first name. It was his last name. Well, technically, it was what's known as a patronym, um, a, a name that identifies someone by telling who their father is. Think of today, we have the last name Johnson, is John's son. The Hebrew word for son is the word bar. You hear it in bar mitzvah, which means son of the commandment. But, uh, for example, Peter, Simon, whose father's name was John, today we'd call him Simon Johnson, uh, but in Hebrew his name was Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, son of John. And this notorious prisoner was known as Barabbas, the son of Abbas, or the son of Abba. You've heard that word before, haven't you? Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So Barabbas means son of the father. And it's interesting uh, because the people were choosing, they were demanding this so-called son of the father to be released to them and to consign Jesus, the true and only son of the father, to death. Another interesting thing about Barabbas was that he was, as we've mentioned, a robber. He was a thief. He was also in prison after being arrested in a rebellion along with others and is now awaiting his own execution. Probably along with others from the insurrection. And we know that Jesus was crucified between two, what? Thieves. Could it be that the middle spot, the spot between those two thieves had been reserved for a third thief from that insurrection named Barabbas and that Jesus took his place that day? Maybe. That's speculation. It's interesting to think about. But beloved, what isn't speculation is that Jesus did, on that day, take the place of you and take the place of me. He took the place of everyone who believes in him. He took our place, not just in the execution of the sentence of the Roman Empire or of the Jewish Sanhedrin, but he took our place in suffering the just punishment of Almighty God against our sin. The old song says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sin away. And Jesus paid that debt freely, fully, eternally for you by taking your place in the path of the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin. Jesus took it. He stood in your place. He hung in your place. Well, Mark says that having released Barabbas, that Pilate, verse 15 here, had Jesus scourged, had him beaten. Let's not pass over that 
too quickly. We read the whole thing and we think about the, we think about the beating, but we think about the, the crucifixion as well. But this scourging, Roman scourging, Roman flogging was no light punishment. In fact, many prisoners died just by this beating. Uh, this torturous punishment, a punishment which left one's back literally torn to shreds and actively bleeding, often serious bleeding from arterial damage from the whips that they would use. I won't go into greater detail this morning. And in fact, the purpose of the scourging, which was normally done before crucifixion, was a type of, a type of sardonic mercy that was intended to weaken the prisoner so that the crucifixion itself wouldn't last for too long. And this scourging was a public event delivered onto Jesus outside the governor's headquarters in view of everyone. And Mark says that having scourged Jesus, then Pilate, hear it again, delivered him to be crucified. Delivered him over, gave him over, gave him up. So we've seen Jesus before Pilate. We've seen Pilate before the council. Now briefly, Jesus before the soldiers. In verses 16 through 20, again, very briefly here, we get five straight verses recording the mocking, the beating, the humiliation poured out upon the innocent, perfect, pure Son of God, made man to redeem man by these soldiers. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 16 says that they called the whole battalion together for this spectacle of depravity. Hey guys, the king of the Jews is here. He has graced us with his presence. Let us go and honor him as he deserves. And the attitude of these Roman soldiers as they, they mock Jesus, as they, they torture him further, they put on him a royal cloak, a purple cloak, the, the color of royalty. They put on him a crown woven from some thorn bush nearby, pressed onto his head, which would cause more pain, more bleeding, and then striking him on the head with a stick, which would have driven those thorns deeper into his scalp. And the grammar of verse 19 points to the fact that this continued. They were continually striking him. They kept spitting on him. And then, when they had had their fun, <coughs> they put what was left of his own clothes back on him. For the time being, since people were crucified without the benefit of clothing. And all the time, as Isaiah again said, he was oppressed 
he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Mark concludes the passage, and we'll conclude this morning by him saying, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Father, though these in this record before us today worshiped your Son in a mocking way, and so many today worship him not at all. Lord, may we ever and always sincerely worship your Son in a way that exalts him for who he is and for what he has done and thanks for what he has suffered. As we've considered a portion of his suffering today, Lord, would you impress on us just what our salvation cost our Lord and Savior. Help us to offer up heartfelt, humble thanks to you always for Christ and for his love for us, that he would endure so much and far more than we can even imagine as he suffered under your wrath for sin in order that we might be called your children. Help us to love you more. Help us to love him more. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.